Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and thanks for joining me on Create the Future, a podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. It all began in 2013, when the first prize was awarded to the pioneers of the internet. Two years later, the prize went to those involved in controlled drug delivery. Then in 2017, it was for digital imaging sensors. And in 2019, for the creators of GPS. And the fifth ever prize has just been announced for the development of LEDs, with five engineers from Japan and the United States sharing the 2021 award. A few years ago, when the prize started, I have thought, boy, that is a wonderful thing that is done to have a prestigious international prize like that for engineering. And to actually win it is the best thing, best career reward I could have. George Crawford. And we'll be hearing more from him and three other prize winners during the podcast. Let's start then with the winning innovation. LEDs are everywhere, used as bright torches on smartphones or in light bulbs in homes and offices. Invented almost 50 years ago, the first LEDs were low illumination, expensive, and only came in one colour, red. Today's LEDs are low cost, highly efficient forms of bright illumination that can be found everywhere from computer screens and handheld laser pointers to traffic lights and concert light shows. And how apt that LEDs have even illuminated Buckingham Palace. LED stands for light emitting diode and it's a device in the form of a semiconductor like aluminium gallium arsenide for example that emits visible light when an electric current flows through it. This device often has impurities added in a process called doping to make it more conductive and the materials produce particles of light or photons with specific frequencies and this determines the colour. The first LEDs used gallium arsenide phosphide, for instance, and this is why the light was red. It took decades of innovation before white LEDs could be produced. Now, like all the innovations that have won the Queen Elizabeth Prize, LEDs have benefited society, and it's their efficiency that's key, because LEDs produce far less heat than conventional light bulbs, leading to more energy savings. And this is why LEDs are often called lighting's green revolution, because they can play a crucial role in reducing carbon dioxide emissions. This revolution truly got underway with Professor Nick Holignac. He studied electrical engineering at the University of Illinois in the United States and spent a year at Bell Telephone Laboratories. After military service, Holignac then spent six years working for General Electric, the company founded by Thomas Edison. And it was there, in 1962, that Holignac invented the first visible, in this case red, light emitting diode. Today he's the university's John Bardeen Endowed Chair, Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering and Physics. A perfect title because John Bardeen invented the transistor and Holignac was his first student. It turns out I was very lucky because I had started working in, uh, here in Illinois on semiconductors because of the business of the transistor. John Bardeen came here from Bell Labs in 1951 
Uh, I already had a master's degree and knew how to do electronics with vacuum tubes. And and uh, here I had an opportunity to learn what the transistor was all about. So I had started in 1951, and by 1954, I had done a PhD thesis. And by uh, 1954, I found myself at Bell Labs and working on silicon devices. And uh, in fact, I'd say that my uh, boss at Bell Labs, John Mall, was one of the greats. And uh, uh, I was very lucky to be working with him. And we did some of the first silicon diffused junction devices with an oxide layer. And all of that wound up in, in California and uh, was the basis for the name Silicon Valley. And uh, so I know, or I knew then, because most of those people are dead. Bardeen is d- dead. Uh, the people he worked with and uh, some of the people that I worked with, almost all of them, because I'm 92, and most of them were older than I. And so uh, a lot of the people that I started with go right back to the very beginning. The transistor was only a year or two old when I was already working in that area. I know you're called the godfather <laughs> of uh, LEDs, yeah. but it does um, sound like an era well, but, of but amazing many discovery. Other devices too. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. a what a time! So you were working with John Bardeen, and you were improving yes. and developing yes. semiconductors, and you were the first to make silicon tunnel diodes. That's right, and uh, in fact, uh, I I maintain that after Abraham Lincoln. In Illinois and in America, one of the greatest men is John Bardeen. And there's an interesting story about how he and I uh, uh, got along because he he came from a well-off family. I came from a very poor family. But somehow or another, I was like a younger brother to him. And uh, he tracked me for about nine years when I was out in the world in industry and, and asked me to come back to the university and bring 3-5 semiconductor work to back to Illinois. And that's what I was working on was uh, uh, light emitters, lasers, and, and so forth. And so the only laser that existed that you could see at the time I returned to the University of Illinois was the ruby laser that Ted Damon made. And, and he won up Bell Labs because Bell Labs had written off the ruby laser. And I wanted to make a, a laser that was driven not by a big, intense uh, photographic lamp, but was driven by current directly. And uh, I thought a semiconductor would do it, and it did. I made my own crystal in gallium arsenide phosphide and, and made the first red visible spectrum alloy laser. And that got for me and my wife a trip to Japan in 1995 to get the Japan Prize. This work that you did, it's just changed the world we live in. Do you ever That's reflect right. on that? Well, you think of it, you're in, um, in science news reporting, and see, when you think back, photographer was always carrying a big load of equipment and all that. Now, that's all replaced with integrated circuitry, semiconductor materials and, and now the lamps, the flash lamps and everything else. And uh, uh, I was able to work out a simple proof that 
maybe someone will think of a different way to generate light. So how do you feel about being awarded the Queen Elizabeth Prize for engineering? Well, I, I, I think it's a great thing. I want to thank all of you because this is a great honor and, and I really appreciate that. I'm just sorry that, that some of the old-timers are not alive because they would appreciate this too. The rather wonderful Nick Holignac. What a career he's had, starting out as a student under the inventor of the transistor. Now, for 10 years, LEDs could only be produced in just that one colour, red, until our next winner managed to produce a brighter red LED and the first yellow LED. And it was by one of Nick Holignac's former graduate students. Until he retired, Professor George Crawford was the chief technology officer of LumiLED's lighting, which made the LEDs that lit up Buckingham Palace in 2006. Crawford studied physics at the University of Illinois before joining the Monsanto Chemical Company to lead its LED technology group. After inventing the yellow LED there in 1972, he joined Hewlett-Packard in 1979, where his team pioneered aluminium-gallium-phosphide LEDs using a process called MOCVD, Metal Organic Chemical Vapor Deposition. The colour of an LED is determined by the semiconductor material that you use for it. And uh, Nick was the one who pioneered using semiconductor alloys. His alloy was between gallium arsenide and gallium phosphide to make gallium arsenide phosphide. And what we did at Monsanto was add nitrogen doping, which is an impurity that we put in the semiconductor, to make it, in the case of this, these materials, it makes it more efficient at shorter wavelengths. Instead of being limited to, to, to red, and if you try and make the red go to yellow by just adding more phosphorus to it, the efficiency drops rapidly. Because of adding this isoelectronic impurity, which had been recently predicted, theoretically, enabled us to go to higher percentages of phosphorus and maintain high efficiency. And so we were able to go to yellow. The color is determined by the energy gap of the semiconductor. And by adding more phosphorus, the energy gap increases, but the efficiency without the nitrogen would decrease sharply and not allow light emission of any significance in the yellow. But by adding the nitrogen doping, we were able to achieve the high performance yellow as well as red and, and red, orange and other colors. And this was the first time you got this very high brightness as well of, of light, this yellow and the amber. Yes, it improved the brightness quite a bit. And we over, over time and over just a few years, we were able to improve the performance of LEDs by about 10 times. And part of the success as well was, was your, you and your team pioneering uh, the LEDs that were using this MOCVD, this metal organic chemical vapor deposition, because yeah. it allowed you to commercially develop it. When I went, went from Monsanto to Hewlett-Packard, we started working on the, the allium gap, aluminum, indium, gallium, phosphide materials for, for LEDs. And that was uh, quite a journey. But uh, we uh, were able to ultimately achieve about a hundred-fold improvement over the 
earlier technology that I was talking about. And so this got us into the very high brightness, um, red, orange, and yellow region. And to do that, technology development just takes, there's a lot of, lot of steps that you, you go through trying to figure out. Well, one thing I would say about LEDs, they have uh, light output inside. You can get a high efficiency inside at the junction, but you have to get the light out of the LED too to do any good. If you just have a cube of semiconductor material with light generated at the junction between the P and N type regions, it tends to rattle around inside this chip. We sometimes say it's like a graveyard for photons in there, a little tombstone, because the photons that you have generated, many of them get absorbed in the chip. And so part of it is to develop ways to extract the light from the chip. We improve that by using semiconductor bonding, a thick piece, a piece of gallium phosphide on the bottom that were transparent so we could extract the light from the devices. So it was both a matter of developing the efficient generation of light inside the chip, which was quite difficult. And uh, the structures that you use to do that involve uh, quantum wells and, you know, many, la many layers. Today's LEDs have like Many of them have a hundred layers in there. Some of the layers just a few nanometers thick. And uh, so these are complicated structures and there's unlimited number of combinations you can do to generate the light inside the chip. So you have to combine all these features in order to get good light output. And then, of course, to get to a production device that you can sell on the market, you have to have be able to produce these in high volume and they can't degrade. And that's one of the difficult things about any LED technology is, is combining those features. You, you go in the lab and you, after a lot of work, you make something that is highly efficient and then you're all excited. And then you put it on a, a reliability test and it fails in a few days and that doesn't work at all. So then you're back in the lab. And in fact, the test usually takes longer. So it's, it's difficult because you don't get feedback as to whether your structure is going to be satisfactory or not until you get the reliability data back. And often there is a trade-off between efficiency and the reliability that you need to have in order to make a commercial product. And then that still doesn't account for the issue of uniformity and yield, which um, in industry, of course, is an important thing. Basically, every wafer has to be the same. And so learning how to control the uniformity and to get the highest possible efficiency and to have the device so it is reliable and can last for tens of thousands of hours is a, a tough combination. Would you say that persistence is, is one of the qualities that an engineer requires and patience? I would definitely say that persistence, yeah, persistence is required. I suppose you can get lucky, but yeah, for most engineering work, I think uh, it's it's exciting, it's interesting, but uh, it, it is yeah, it's challenging, and you have to keep working at it. You certainly do. For Crawford, it's been a 50-year journey of constantly improving on the technology. As decades later, at LumiLeds, he went on to develop the first high-power white LEDs. But there were several essential stages that were required before that could happen. And the role played by the third winner, Russell Dupuis, allowed 
for one of them, the commercial development of high-quality semiconductors. Dupuy is a professor at Georgia Institute of Technology and, like Nick Holognac, is also a University of Illinois graduate in electrical engineering. He was working at Rockwell International when he became the first to develop that MOCVD process, metal organic chemical vapour deposition, and it could be applied to high-quality semiconductors and devices to produce high-performance LEDs. Here's Dupuy explaining the MOCVD process in more detail. Well, the last three letters, chemical vapor deposition, are generally used to describe processes that use, as the word says, chemicals in a vapor phase form, so a gas form, to deposit a material to create a solid film, in this case. And the metal organic part, the MO part, comes from the fact that these compounds, when they were developed many, many years ago in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 1930s, were called metal organics because they had metal atoms that were bonded to organic molecules like methyl radicals or ethyl radicals, so relatively simple organic radicals. And the value to this was that metals could be transported into chemical reactions in a vapor phase process. So the innovation of the MOCVD, which was invented by a chemist named Harold Manassevet in 1968, is that you can transport metals with relative ease to a gas environment where you can mix that vapor with other compounds in the vapor phase and then thermally decompose them to form a solid film composed of the metal plus the additional elements you might add in gas form. So at the time, the MLCD process in the early 70s was not used widely because it was considered to be fairly impure, produce lower quality material. It turned out that was simply due to the fact that the chemicals, the initial chemicals we used, weren't very pure because no one had bothered to purify them because they weren't important. So um, in fact, interesting story, I think, about this process when Professor Dr. Manasevet was first working on this, he called a large US chemical company that was making some of these compounds commercially for industrial use. And he asked them for some of this material and they said, oh, that's very nice. How many railroad tank cars do you want? Literally, they're making this by the ton, but at very low purity. So it took a long time for this small niche application of making semiconductors to be attractive enough for some chemists to go and purify these compounds. That really was an important event, but it became driven by the need to grow semiconductors so that once my work was published in 1977 in this field, a lot of people were surprised and then changed their mind about it and started to work on it themselves. So many groups in the UK, in France, in Japan got involved in 
this work, Germany as well. So there, eventually people started to develop this and then the chemicals got purer and our materials got better. So this, you know, this is very important to produce these high quality semiconductors and these mixtures, there's these layers, these sort of atomic level layers, a layer upon layer helped with that precision. And then that would have an effect on the sort of properties of the semiconductor. Yes, that's correct. Today, all of these physical LEDs we use are composed of maybe in some cases hundreds of layers, but typically at least five or six different materials composed especially for the design of this particular LED structure. And in many cases, those layers are only a few atomic layers thick. So on the order of 10 or 20 angstroms or two or three nanometers. So uh, precision is important. And of course, uniformity is important at that scale. So being able to make large area, highly uniform, thin films on the order of a single atomic layer efficiently with low cost and high yield is a critical factor in the cost that's dramatically changed in how expensive an LED is. Blue laser pointers used to be, you know, $100. <laughs> and now now they're sort of almost throwaway items again. They're, they're so ubiquitous and, and relatively cheap. And this is a key thing here, as you say, is that it it could be scaled up. I mean, you know, when you're describing it in terms of size and then having that precision on such a large scale, which you need to make everything commercial, it's even now, I mean, considering that was 40 over 40 years ago, I mean, that's incredible that that it could be done. And of course, it's it allowed such enormous change. You must be so proud in terms of what's happened as a result of this and your your role in the LED innovation. I'm obviously very proud of that, and I have a lot of people to thank. One of the most important in my life, technically, of course, was my PhD advisor, Professor Nick Holniak, who, as you know, is... Yes, the godfather of <laughs> LEDs, yes. And literally, I think people have misinterpreted the value of his work over the course of many years because while Nobel Prizes have been given for the heterostructure, for example, semiconductor heterostructure, and more recently for the blue LED development, none of that would happen without Nick's, Professor Holniak's work on alloy semiconductors, on compiling three elements to make a semiconductor or four elements to make a semiconductor in a controlled way to control the electronic properties of the material. And that so-called ternary, quaternary innovation was entirely his. And without that set of innovations, none of these devices would be here today. So his fundamental work in actually in the 1960s and early 70s, were the critical ones in getting us where we are today. I must admit, I did enjoy talking to him. And he, you know, he just casually mentioned that he was 92. And it's astonishing because he's, uh, 
I hope I'm as mentally competent as I am at 92 as when I'm 70, let alone 92. Was he fun to work with? Oh, yes. Uh, Nick was very personable, very, he was one of us, or we were one of his children almost. He was the kind of hands-on professor. Well, he actually would eat his lunch in the laboratory. So so uh, occasionally he would actually, you know, get involved in an experiment and physically roll up his sleeves and, and get some chemicals ready and etch some crystals and then uh, cleave them and and then the students would take over. He would come in every every morning at 7 a.m. and wouldn't leave until 4 or 4.30 to go home and, and read the New York Times, read some more journals, start writing papers. Come in the next morning and the paper was written, you know. <laughs> he, was, he was 100% involved, both as a director of what's going on and as a participant. And uh, I, I think from my personal experience, most of his students became so enamored with him as a person that we we think of him as our godfathers and technical godfather for sure it sounds like working with Holland was one of you know one of your many probably career highlights but what would you say what is it about engineering that you know still gives you a thrill engineering as you know is very much applied fundamental knowledge, both from the physics community and the chemistry community, even mechanical environments that uh, Archimedes and others worked on. But the unique feature, I think, is it it's is fundamental knowledge applied to practical problems. So engineering advances humanity when it's done properly. When you think about moving from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age, to the steam age and beyond, a lot of those advances are based on understanding Mother Nature and applying that understanding to a practical problem. And that's what engineers do, whether we're talking about biomedical engineering or chemical engineering or material science or electrical engineering. These are disciplines that are seeking to improve the human condition in in most cases. I think there's only, in my view, besides medicine, uh, engineering is the primary field for advancing the human condition. I think for young people, if they they have an interest in math and, and physics and applying those things to those technologies and ideas to better humanity, it's it's one of the best careers you can uh, use to contribute to humanity. Russell Dupuy. So far, all three winners I've spoken to have been Americans, and all three graduated from the University of Illinois. The other two winners, however, are from Japan, and both shared the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2014 for, and I quote, the invention of efficient blue light-emitting diodes, which has enabled bright and energy-saving white light sources. Electrical engineer Professor Isamu Akasaki, an academic who later founded the Akasaki Institute in 2006, upgraded the MOCVD technology further. And from this innovation, Shuji Nakamura of the Nichia Corporation made the first blue LED 
in 1979. This is more than 100 times brighter than the Professor Akasaki's developed LEDs. And then in 1993, my whole company started the commercialization of high brightness glue LEDs in 1993. Also, we, we developed the first high brightness green LEDs in 1995. Also, same time, company started the commercialization. And the important bit here is because we now had blue light LEDs, mm-hmm. you could actually make white LEDs, which I don't think most people would think, oh, how, you know, how did that happen? But this is because yeah, yes. the human eye can see a combination of blue and yellow light, yes. which you used a yes. phosphor, and blue and the yellow light made the white light. Yes, in 95, you know, we, we also we could, our former companies started selling the white LEDs. Because initially, we started selling blue LEDs since 93, and all of our cell phone company contacted our company to make white LEDs for the backlight of the uh, cell phone LCD display. I must admit, I think most people, particularly young people today, don't realize that it wasn't that long ago when the only display on a mobile phone was in green light. Is yes, that, that is a, yeah, that is the same as the fluorescent lamp, just a cold cathode luminescence, we said. Yeah, so, it's terrible, no? <laughs> <laughs> it is, you're so, right. It's hard to imagine that we take all these white LEDs for yeah, granted yeah. so much. Yeah, so, so our company is also making a phosphor. So we selected yellow phosphor to emit a uh, yellow emission. So using blue LED, we excite the yellow phosphor. And we can make a white LED, mixing of yellow and uh, blue, it becomes white in 95. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, it's a part of our lives. It's something that a younger generation completely take for granted because that's all they've grown up with. Congratulations on being one of the winners of the Queen Elizabeth Prize. It's fascinating to see or hear about the different developments that have led to it. It shows that it's teamwork. It takes time. You build on the work of others and improve it. And that's how engineering works how how are you feeling right now at uh, i know uh, all of you have are very uh, eminent and have won various prizes i mean you've won the nobel prize how do you feel about getting this award this award is a teamwork award so i'm very happy of the uh, other colleagues because uh, uh, nick horoniak you know developed the fast visible leds also russell russell jeppes developed the mocvd because uh, MOCVD is most important to grow epitaxial wafers. We have to use MOCVDs. Also, George Crawford, you know, developed the high-efficient red and yellow LEDs. When I started the blue LED research in 89, my dream was to overcome the Hewlett-Packard, George Crawford group, you know. <laughs> That's the reason I always thinking about how to make a white LED, not blue LED, you know. So also, you know, my, my colleague also, Professor Kasak, you know, so... Basically, you know, all of the <laughs> teamwork. So all of the people contributed this, uh, you know, to make a service writing. So I'm very happy to together with other colleagues. Professor Shuji Nakamura. And it's lovely to hear how each of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering winners is so keen to pay tribute to each other.
and the fruits of their innovations continues to expand as researchers are working on increasing the power of LEDs that emit UV light so that they can be used to sterilise the air in rooms, something that would be especially useful during a pandemic. And that's it for our special 2021 Winners Edition of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering's Create the Future podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you.